Welcome to Lineage. I'm your host, Shani Jamila. On this show, I'm talking across generations with some of our most imaginative thinkers about how New York City impacts their work and how their work impacts the world. This episode was recorded live at the Brooklyn Museum in February of 2019. We gathered to commemorate the seminal exhibition, Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, curated by Zoe Whitley and Mark Godfrey in London and by Ashley James in New York. This show highlighted more than 150 pieces of work made by socially engaged Black artists from 1963 to 1983, including paintings, prints, photography, assemblage and sculpture, and performance. For this live taping of Lineage, the first ever, I spoke with Ming Smith, a legendary photographer whose work was one of my personal favorites in the show, and Russell Frederick, an acclaimed documentary photographer known for his portraits of Bed-Stuy. Both of them are members of Kamange, an intergenerational collective of Black photographers. We talk about what brought them to their work, the goals of their practice, and the rich tradition of image makers that inspire them. We'll open with an introduction from the Brooklyn Museum, and then go on to the show. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for making it through the winter cold and getting out here for our first Saturday. We're celebrating the end of Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power. What a better way to do it. <laughs> Amazing, what a better way to do it than with the faces we have up here. So it is my distinct pleasure to introduce tonight's artist talk. I'm Brian Orozco, one of the public program fellows here at the Brooklyn Museum where we help organize events much like this one. So tonight, like I said, we're celebrating Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power. Specifically, we'll be talking, I won't be doing any talking, Shani will be doing all the talking. <laughs> the Kamoinge Collective was founded during the Black Power Movement, which is still active today. We saw ourselves as a group who were trying to nurture each other. Louis Draper, a founding member of the Kamoinge Workshop, who passed away in 2002, once wrote, we had no outlets, the magazines wouldn't support our work, so we wanted to encourage each other, to give each other feedback. We tried to be a force, especially for younger people. In 2016, the collective turned 50. Shani Jamila, a Brooklyn-based artist and cultural worker, here will host our conversation tonight. Her travels to nearly 50 countries throughout the Americas, Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Caribbean deeply inform her photography and collage practice. She has exhibited and performed at the Manifesta European Biennial of Contemporary Art, Harvard University, Lewis Museum, Brooklyn Museum, Smack Mellon Gallery, Scope Art Fair, Corridor Gallery, the City College of New York, the New Museum, and the Princeton M University. That's right. Let me begin just by echoing his thanks for all of you coming here. It makes my heart just smile to look out and see all of your faces. So I'm really grateful to have you be part of our conversation tonight. Um, and I want to thank the Brooklyn Museum, um, Brian, um, for that gracious introduction, June for helping facilitate all the logistics, and Alicia Boone, who is unfortunately no longer here. She's moved on to a new gig, but did incredible work during her tenure here. Um, and I'm really, really grateful for all that she contributed to our community and will cont continue to contribute. Um, as he said, my name is Shani Jamila, and I am um, the host of a brand new podcast that is launching with you here tonight um, called Lineage. And Lineage is going to be um, me in conversation with um, people that I am in community with, so friends and um, peers and people that I look up to, um, 
talking to them about the idea of home. I'm looking at people who've been based in New York City or have some sort of connection to the city and how that's influenced both their practice um, and how we can use our practices to influence social change. So that's all gonna be coming. And I encourage you to go to your socials, whatever your favorite is, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, and be among the first to follow us at, at Lineage Podcast. That's at Lineage Podcast. So I'm gonna begin um, by introducing these two fantastic people that I am surrounded by. Russell Fedrick, born in the bustling multicultural neighborhood of Bushwick, Brooklyn. He's well known domestically and internationally for his compelling 20 year documentary photography from bed to Ethiopia. He also mentors young people as the men's director for the Kings Against Violence Initiative Intervention Program known as Kavi. He's been the recipient of awards and grants from the Gordon Parks Foundation, the Innovation Fund, the Open Society Foundation, New York Foundation for the Arts, Brooklyn Arts Council, and the Urban Artist Initiative. His work is in the permanent collections of the Gordon Parks Museum, the Brooklyn Public Library, the Open Society Foundation, and more. Give it up for Russ. And to my left, we have um, an artist who's featured in the exhibition that I hope you all have had the chance to see, and if not, make sure to check it out while you're here tonight, Soul of a Nation. Um, Mink Smith is known for her informal, in-action portraits of black cultural figures from Alvin Ailey to Nina Simone and a wide range of jazz musicians. Her career emerged formally with the publication of the Black Photographer's Annual in 1973. She was an early member of the Kamungi Workshop, an association of several generations of black photographers. She's traveled extensively, showing her viewers a cosmopolitan world filled with famous landmarks and extraordinary landscapes. Her photography is held in a number of collections, including MoMA, the Schomburg Center, and most recently, the Whitney, Ming Smith. And honestly, thus concludes the most formal part of this evening. <laughs> now it's just gonna be a conversation um, with people that, that I love. So I wanna begin um, by centering the conversation in, in something that my grandma always used to say to me. Um, my grandma was a genealogist and um, part of the inspiration behind the title of this new podcast, Lineage. She was known for calling people out of the phone book, just cold calling back when we used to have uh, yellow pages and white pages, for those of y'all who are old enough to remember those things. If she went through and flipped through the pages and she saw a name that looked like it might have been one of our family names, she would cold call and just say, tell me who your people are. Tell me who you be and where you belong. And so I'm gonna ask the two of you to begin by just answering that question, who you be and where you belong. Ladies first. It's interesting because um, Kamangi, when we were talking about Kamangi, which she spoke about the collective, mm -hmm. they honored um, Morgan and Marvin Smith. And at the time, I had, uh, I had just recently married, and I didn't go to that celebration. But, you know, and they were both really big photographers in Harlem, right? And then I found out later, years later, I mean at least 20 years later, that they were from Paducah. 
My grandfather was from Paducah, and his father, uh, uh, they freed the slaves, including his father. And, and this was in Paducah, they had a big um, uh, slave uh, uh, plantation. So I realized any of the Smiths were part of that, and they were family, and, um, and they were visual artists. So in, in my particular land, the Smiths, they were all visual artists, cousins, someone that I met, they were cousins. So I felt that that was like the, a connection at the time. Who I be and where I belong. Excuse me, um, I be Russell Keith Frederick, the son to Amelia Frederick. I am from Brooklyn. I am from Panama. I am from West Africa. And I am a gift. And I am a man with a purpose. Actually, while you have the mic, tell me how you came to photography. Yes, um, it was in, so from my childhood, I was always artistic. Uh, remember at the age of 12, I was doing graffiti and I was really loving it and my mother hated it. <laughs> and she was just like, art is a hobby. So get this art thing out your head. And, um, but I wouldn't stop. Even when she took my markers away, I started making markers um, just to pursue my graffiti. How do you make a marker? Okay, kids do not do this, okay? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, <laughs> what I would do, I would uh, take a deodorant roll-on bottle empty all of deodorant out. I would put alcohol, rubbing alcohol, rubbing alcohol, <laughs> and uh, to be clear, absolutely. <laughs> and I would put carbon paper in with the alcohol. I would let it sit for a week and I would search around uh, school, public school, since it's a public school, things were accessible to me and um, let that make the ink, and I would borrow a wool eraser from school, and I would peel off the wool strips, fold it over, and voila, I got a marker ready to do my graffiti. B, that's genius, how do you? <laughs> and I failed chemistry, just to let you know. <laughs> my, all this creativity was kind of stewing, and um, it was, as I was starting to explore more, I was in architecture school after I graduated from high school and I found it just way too tedious and boring for me. And it was two and a half years in and didn't enjoy it. And after that, I uh, was in nursing school because my mother's a nurse. And all going through, going through all these kind of traditional regimented jobs, I just didn't find like I was fulfilled. And I knew one thing, I did not want to be like my grandfather and just living for a pension and be unhappy. And um, I picked up a camera 
it was after going through nursing school for a year, I realized I was working at Beth Israel Medical Center. And um, I just realized that this was what I wanted to do. And when I was 25, I had a conversation with God, like, just please help me out and direct me to where I need to be. And two years later, I picked up a camera for the first time because some friends of mine were starting a magazine called Indigo. And I was enjoying it. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, they thought I should do some fashion as a styling. And they asked me to make a portfolio. And I was like, what's a portfolio? Um, got some of my friends together. And I was having some fun mixing and matching clothes. And then it was, I was doing that for two years. And then I saw an article in Time Out Magazine, and it was speaking about the International Center of Photography, was offering a course in black and white photography. I saved up my money, signed up for this course, and on the first day of class, an instructor said he wanted to look at our work, and I had a little four by six album that they gave away for free at the photo lab. And when he looked at my work, he told me on the first day, he said, you will be a great photographer. It'll be a shame if you don't pursue this seriously. I never looked back. I couldn't afford to take any more classes. I just went to Barnes and Nobles and looked at photography books. I studied all album covers and CD covers, trying to create what I saw and just getting feedback. And then I made the commitment to never look back and I left healthcare, left nursing and my family left me, they were like, you think we came to this country for you to take pictures? <laughs> <laughs> and from there, um, I happened to meet Eli Reed. Uh, for those of you who may not know him, he's a legendary photographer and he was a neighbor. And a good friend of mine was living in the same brownstone that he was in. He said, I don't know who this guy is, but he just gets a lots of mail and he's never here. Um, I called him, because already I left Beth Israel, and asked him if we could meet for lunch. And um, I was unemployed at the time, and I wasn't even getting unemployment. It was a difficult time. And he was graceful enough to accept my offer. We went to lunch, he looked at my work, and he told me, gave me some advice. And from there, he brought me into Magnum Photos. Let me pause you right there because that's a beautiful way to start to bring in how the city helped influence your practice because Absolutely. it turns out that your neighbor was this legendary photographer. Um, but Aming, I want to bring you into the conversation too. Um, it, it, one of the things that kind of strike, strikes me as I'm listening to Russell talk is it's really about, not just photography as an art form, but it was about trying to find a way to be in concert with what his own spirit was telling him to do. Um, and as I was preparing for our conversation tonight, I came across this quote that you said that your father would tell you to thine own self be true. I wonder how that influenced your journey to becoming a, a photographer. Photography has been, and still is, has been a um, spiritual journey for me. I never decided to be a photographer. I mean, I didn't even know what you could do with photography. As, as a, a young girl, but I took photographs of my kindergarten class when I was six, and I took photographs in college, but uh, I think New York was seduced me because I, my first apartment was on 106th Street, 
Duke Ellington, they said, was right down the street, Duke Ellington. Then um, Lou Draper with Kamangi. Uh, when I met him, he told me stories about Lorraine Hansberry. And I was like, Lorraine Hansberry, and he said he had a crush on her. <laughs> and she was in the same building as Eugene Smith. I was walking down the street, uh, and I al always wanted to dance, and I still dance. I do Cuban, Afro-Cuban, you know, um, different West African, um, Sabar. But I was going to the store after a Kamangi meeting, actually, and they asked me to go to the store because there was someone that was there. And I heard this drumming. It was at 14th Street and 6th Avenue. And there was the Congos. And so I was like, I just something just went through me. So I um, ran up the steps, three flights of steps. And there was a man that was drumming, and he was teaching dance. And there was about seven students. And um, he didn't stop his class, but he sh pointed that there was a flyer there and you know and it told the times of teaching you know when he taught and everything and so I started that and that was 30 years ago so it was like everything in my life in in New York it was like always seducing me and the people that I met Romar Bearden this I went to the studio museum I met Ed Clark Jane Cortez um, just uh, many, many artists. Uh. You know, let me actually, because Russell, I know you were born here, but Ming, one of the things that really interests me about this phenomenon of New York is just this um, city that for generations has attracted the best of creative folks from whatever discipline. Um, there's something special about the city that draws us here, mm -hmm. and that's really where I want to just interrogate, you know, what is that thing about New York? What was it that brought you here from, from, your, from Ohio? Well, when I was 12, my grandfather, he took me to see Paul Lawrence Dunbar's house in Dayton, which I was in Columbus, and he brought me to New York to um, see the Empire State Building. And, and he brought, like, well, I, it was a big thing then, but my grandmother was raising an illegitimate child, and my Aunt Ruth, who was in and out of, and then there was me. And we were like three misfits. When I came to New York, it was, the buildings were so high, and I was like, oh, there was just something I saw. Because growing up in Columbus, you were either black or white. There wasn't anything else, even if you were a Springs and you... Uh, and there was like um, in Native Americans that were blonde and blue-eyed, but if you were Native American, you were just either black or white, and there was a lot of mixture. So there was, and there wasn't any other, there wasn't, there were no um, Indian people or Indonesian, nothing. So, um, so being in New York, I, I said then I, I, I wanted to. And then when I came here, it was like with all the different people. And what I liked was the energy, um, the energy of people wanted to do things. 
even if the odds were against, like a new models, and you know, we reinvented ourselves. We didn't have anything, we, and it was a struggle, and it was all types. It was just, um, everyone came from different backgrounds, but we were all starting from scratch to, you know, and so I explored everything. So when you came here, you began modeling, like in the same time as Beth Ann Hardison and... Right, when I came in, in fact, uh, you know, the, um, Stephen Burroughs, she was his model, and B. Smith, I mean, we were all like, we would get clothes, you know, cheap clothes to take photos in, and then we'd go return them just so we had photos, but it was this, is it was just a struggle and it was um it wasn't like we were going to say no we were pioneers it was like nothing was we didn't expect anything but we tried and it was like a real struggle just like i have photographs of grace jones i took those photographs before she became grace jones then, you know, before she had the accent. That is shame. You know, but we would, um, and she, never, she didn't get a job. She didn't have one job. And, she, and she, you know, it was like, um, yeah, it was, it, it was a struggle, but we all knew, you know, to like, like with the photography, I photographed her because I photographed, but I didn't even really consider myself a photographer. It was just something that I did. I mean, to me, that really epitomizes what it means to be here in the city, is you have all these misfits and all these creatives who come together and find community. But, but that's for those of us who are transplants, for those of you who grew up here, how, how do you define the way that the city's impacted your work? Boy, it's um, so many ways. Um, for me, the, the first thing is, is just, I guess, when you look at New York City and um, getting on the subway, what you may see, the diversity, the culture, and um, growing up in Brooklyn. And um, growing up in Brooklyn, Brooklyn was not the place anybody wanted to come to back in the days, <laughs> all right? So knowing what Brooklyn was to the outside community, but it also what, it, what I saw, what I experienced, what I grew up in, how even where I grew up at in, in Bushwick in my childhood, it was black, it was Latino, um, it was considered poor, but you couldn't tell us that we weren't wealthy and we weren't rich. Uh, and with that experience, how it just shaped me as a young man. And as I started to mature and reading more and learning about photography, as I started to, you know, but just see really the power of images and just how the images that were constructed of us in publishing and media and how they weren't always honest. And then I started to learn really who was creating these images. And it was very few people who looked like me. And looking at the place that where I come from, I just couldn't understand really why aren't we authoring more of our stories from our communities. And 
my experiences with my friends, and I just started to say to myself, um, you know what, I think I just need to do this. And in traveling and reading, I just started to see really, I think, what was missing. And in learning about people who weren't from New York and what their perception was, and even how media, music, uh, Spike Lee shaped really how some people saw us, I felt that with all the creative energy here, because New York is just you know, the capital of everything, <laughs> hands down. When there's anything cultural, artistic, and I felt that what was happening in Brooklyn in the 90s, in the 80s, uh, it was, I had, to, I had a purpose to now really just let the story be told visually. So this question is for whichever one of you wants to take it first, but you started, both of you actually started early in your careers, you photographing uh, residents of Harlem and you photographing your neighbors in Bed-Stuy. Mm -hmm. So tell me about what drew you to those projects? What was the aesthetic that you were um, looking to capture? What was the spirit of that work? All right, uh, for me, uh, I started photographing Bed-Stuy because when I told people where I lived, they would always say, oh, you must, when I told people where I worked at, um, I worked at the Associated Press at the time, um, where I lived, they were like, you must walk around with a helmet and a bulletproof vest. And um, I was 100% offended and got into some heated dialogues. And when hearing that, I just said to myself, you know what, the best way to, to educate, to inform, would be through the work. And what I saw how my community was portrayed and from people who were not black, but were in positions of power to really tell this story, I felt that there was, it was out of context, and I only saw really issues that were in our community highlighted. I never saw like what I would see 90% of the time when I walked even to get something to eat, and just even walking on my block and greeting strangers, I didn't see the community, I didn't see the love, I didn't see the culture, I didn't see the faith, I didn't see, you know, what the style, I didn't see the sexy, I didn't see, you know, what I didn't see the style, I didn't see the sexy, <laughs> and um, I didn't, I didn't see any of that. So every day, 1999, I just started walking with my camera and as I'm learning photography, I would just approach people and really just ask them to tell me something about them, ask them, tell them what I was doing, what my intention was, that I was gonna make a book on the neighborhood and I really wanted to show them in a way which, you know, uh, ordinary people aren't seen and that they were important. So it was also to giving value to the people who I think are uh, overlooked, who are um, invisible, who I think a lot of publishing and media has deemed maybe um, invisible, or since it's not something, it's not a celebrity, 
or if it's not something that maybe falls into um, this monolith uh, that we have been kind of uh, pigeonholed to, it wouldn't get any headlines, wouldn't get no coverage. So I just started capturing what I saw on a daily basis. And this is 80%, 85% strangers. And from that, I just said to myself that the Brooklyn that I saw, and, and one thing, the other thing I need to say is I also knew Bed-Stuy was gonna be changing. I saw the writing on the wall way back then. Lampposts were being changed, the aluminum ones were being taken down to the cast iron. Street vendors were moving. So I felt that it was my responsibility to honor the good people that I saw every day because they weren't gonna be around much longer. Thank you. Thank you. Ming, does any of that resonate with what your intention was when you were um, making those photographs? Most definitely. Capturing the humanity of our people. You know, um, I, there weren't that many images. There was like, and like when I tell my son, there was only one black on TV when I was growing up. So it's really changed. And that was uh, Nat King Cole. And then they took him off because he was too powerful. So um, just capturing the humanity and the love of, of who we are. I had um, Roydy Carava, which was uh, the inspiration, uh, was one of the people that inspired me. And Gordon Parks, of course, those images. And I love those photographers. Uh, and like I lived in the vi village also, and I met Lisette Modell. And so it was more like of a, in the beginning it was like um, artists, the, you know, they were artists. And, you know, she would talk about uh, Dion. So by then, when I met her, I understood photography as an art form. But in the beginning, it was to love and not um, the love and the humanity of the people. That I, I wonder how your experience on both sides of the camera impacted your work as a photographer, because you know what it is to be a model and to be a photographer. It, I imagine that's almost like being a teacher and a student, like you know, you know it from both sides of the spectrum. Is that accurate? Um, it's real. It's very different. Um, I, I. Um, at one point, I was saying, I was going to say that I was going to photograph the other models, not in front of the camera, but models just in the way that they lived, because um, we were all, you know, we were friends. We were basically friends. We were a group, a small group of folks. Uh, but they told me no, not to, because photographers are, would be intimidated. Uh, so in one way, but uh, fashion photography is one thing and advertising is another and the intentions are very different. Uh, I worked for Encore magazine. Uh, it was like a time, a black time magazine just for a while. And so they wanted me to go to Africa, but 
Ida said no. They, Ida Lewis, she also started um, Essence, es, es, Essence Magazine, because she said, oh no, you're a woman and we don't want you to get hurt or killed. And so, um, so it's different. You know, we have different. I wonder if you would share with us a story of, um, really it's a story of self-determination, but of how you took your portfolio of photographs to MoMA and eventually entered into their collection. But I know there was a lot of, it was a circuitous route to get there. Can you tell us what oh. that story was? So one day I was, I don't know, I decided, I was like, my work is good. I'm gonna go show my work at the Museum of Modern Art. And, um, and there were no conversations. There was no direction. There wasn't anything, you know, people weren't having shows or, you know, that I knew of. So I decided, I called up to say I wanted to drop, I wanted to show my portfolio because they had a drop-off period on Thursdays or, or something and you picked your portfolio up two days afterwards. So I put, a really nice portfolio, I thought, and still good because some of these images are now, you know, in different collections. Uh, to drop off my portfolio, but I had on my jeans and my bomber jacket and my sneakers or whatever. And when I walked in there, it was like walking into um, bizarre magazine. Everyone was very polished and upscale, very elitist. Let's say, and I was like, and then when the receptionist, uh, she took my portfolio and she thought I was a messenger. And um, so afterwards, you know, but it was really beautiful because I was saying like, oh, I would like to photograph this because the women were just really in a different way. So, and I knew about Jacob Lawrence also because that was his first, one of the first places that showed his work. And I felt kind of down in myself. I was like, oh, why did I do this? You know, like, I wasn't feeling good at all. I, and I didn't feel empowered at all when I, you know, walking. And then I went to pick up my portfolio. And um, the same receptionist, she uh, said, and she, she asked me my name, and I said, my name is Ming Smith. And she's like, oh, <laughs> like that. She says, well, and she was, her, her attitude was just completely changed. She said, well, we would like you to have a seat here. And, um, you know, so while John Sarkowski wanted to talk to me, you know, I was like, <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. But before that, it was, um, she had the seat. And I knew then before she went in the back. And, the, and then Susan Kismer came out and she said, well, he's not here, but, uh, I wanted to tell you that we love your work and we can't, we don't understand how you even did this work. And she went on and on and she, and she put seven or eight photographs uh, on the table and she said, we couldn't decide between these. And so which, which ones would you want us to have in your collection? And so I, I told her, well, it was a black one and one that was, I had taken in Germany that was to me very poetic, uh, and so I chose those. And then she told me, I, 
uh, how much she was gonna, uh, I was saying, well, how much do you pay? <laughs> or something like that. And she's like, um, I don't know, it was like maybe 300 $400 something. I was like, that doesn't even pay for my paper and my chemicals, right? Is this is the Museum of Modern Art. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't think. She says, are you kidding? People try to give us work here. And I was like, well, I, I don't know. That's like, I was you know, very disappointed. I thought maybe I would get thousands or something because it was the Museum of Modern Art. And um, so she said just to think about it. And could she keep those two and pick and, you know, she would see and just think about it. And so I went home and I told my, my, my husband at the time, he was like, you know, you better go get that money like that. So, <laughs> you know, but. I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about the union the two of you shared artistically. Were you collaborating with each other? Um, tell us about what that relationship was, was like. Hmm. Well, let's see. Okay, David Murray, the musician. Well, the first time uh, there was, say, for example, there was a rehearsal at our house with a Imamu Baraka and Amina, and I was working on my work, and you know they were having a rehearsal, and Amina came because they used to travel together all when they from Newark to New York, and she saw me. I was coloring some photographs uh, and she's like oh I like that like that and I was like thanks she says can I buy that actually she was the first person that ever bought any of my work and I was like really like that because I hadn't even thought about selling my work or even trying to do that you know, I knew Rumar Bearden and but I just hadn't thought about it I mean these artists were still struggling you know so um, so, okay, so I just wanted to say that that was the first time that someone bought my work. And, and when David would go on tour, I would go along and I would shoot. So I shot people like uh, Dexter Gordon and, and um, you know, Chicago art, art Ensemble. But also, the first time I went to, and it was Switzerland, Baraka was there. I mean, not Baraka, but Baldwin, James Baldwin, and Babs Gonzalez, and all these folks um, were there at the table. And it, it was amazing to me that, um, that, you know, Baldwin, he would hang out with the jazz musicians, and he loved to talk, and he was just like one of the guys. It wasn't anything, um, but, also, I just wanted to say this, just above Midtown, I did, um, the gallery. Linda, mm -hmm. Lin, Lin, Linda Bryant asked me to do something because she knew I danced and she knew I was, I was already a photographer. I think I was in MoMA by then. And so I did a, I did a, a presentation with David and I danced and so. It's just amazing to me to hear these stories because that was the New York I imagined and I read about and I thought maybe one day about and then to hear you know, directly from you who lived that moment, what that was New York was like. Because there's so many different New Yorks really at any given time, even now, like in this moment that we're sitting here, there's so many different New Yorks just represented in the people that are in this room. 
So um, thank you for sharing a little piece of, of what that one was like. Um, we've talked a little bit about both of your careers as individuals, but of course you came here um, and formed community um, with the people that you just mentioned, for instance, but then also um, there's a very intentional community of photographers that, um, as Brian mentioned in the introduction, has celebrated over 50 years together now, the Kamange Collective. Um, and both of you are members of that collective. I wonder if you would talk to us about uh, what the impetus behind that, the formation of that group was uh, and the role that it plays in your work today. Um, Kamange formed um, 1965 to, uh, to actually create images to counter the negative stereotypes that were existing in publishing and media. And it also came together to create art um, and to challenge each other to the highest artistic ability. Um, founding members were Lou Draper, um, Sean Walker, Herbert Randall, Ray Francis, and a few others. So from this time, Roy De Carava was our first director. Um, that in itself is just an amazing to be able to say. I mean, thinking about his own just individual legacy. Absolutely. Um, but he set the standard, I think, really for, he set the standard, I'd say, for me. I think he set a standard for Kamange in 1963, um, 65. And for me, in learning about photography, because I haven't had any formal training or history, when I just got introduced to Kamange through first Rewind, it was a Joseph Rodriguez, a mentor of mine. He introduced me to the sweet fly paper of life. And when I first saw that book, I was just blown away. Um, was just love. It was, it was magnificent. It was beauty. And it was Roy De Carava's photos and Langston Hughes' poems. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it was published in 1953, and it is the first photography book to show black people in a dignified manner. The very first. It's been reprinted uh, recently, so uh, you could probably have access to it now. But in learning of Kamange and then being invited by Eli Reed to be amongst this great collective, I was really just blown away and in a bit of awe that for someone like myself to be who always wanted to be amongst a community of black photographers who were committed to the same things that I valued. And to learn of the history and to see the standard and really feel, be a part of a team that I felt that we could educate the world. We could also to empower each other and even inspire those who are in places that we don't know that 
there is a career in this. There is a purpose in this, as well to show media and publishing really how great we are and we are just as good as all the people who did not necessarily want to give us work, that we were equal and our voice, our perspective was missing from media and publishing and it was important. And also too, just lastly, Shoshani, it was to teach each other. So to support each other, and not just even the teaching aspect. Support, I can't tell you how many of the photographers in Kamange, when, hey, things were low, hey, Russell, I got some film for you. Um, hey, Russell, you, you can come assist me on this job. Um, and even helping me grow as a man. So all of this just shapes you and when you could look to the person on your left and your right and you can see that your struggles have been their struggles, now you have, you know what, hope, you have confidence, and you know that what you've committed your life to doing, you just need to put your head down and keep going forward. Y'all can clap. <laughs> I know one of the things that you're talking about the values um, that you see reflected in the group, and I know one of those is gender equity, Absolutely. and that under your leadership, there's been more women inducted into the oh, yeah. group. Um, but Ming was the very first Absolutely. woman to become a member of that group. Can big you talk up, to big them? up, big up for Ming. Big up. <laughs> Don't be shy. I know this seems odd, but I didn't even consider myself a woman. <laughs> I didn't even think, you know, in those terms, I was, because um, I was an artist and I didn't, it was things that you had to fight through as a black person that was more of made my way of thinking. It was just, there was a, a, so many conflicts that were going on then that um, so I was mainly inspired by the other artists like there were great artists like Lou Draper his work uh, Roy's work Sweet Flypaper that's why I did the body of work uh, of, on August Wilson I went to the Hill District uh, because I wanted to do a collaboration with August Wilson, so I photographed the Hill District. Um, because then th the humanity of things were was more in my mind. Um, the you know the art form was it was more um, it was larger, you know it was larger than my own. Uh, conflicts that I had to go through. But in interestingly enough, I met Deb Willis that came to a meeting, but I wasn't there. I came in late or something and she was there and um, you know, there was, we, we connected because we were females, but it wasn't like it wasn't like in the forefront, you know. 
it just was a, a natural thing. So. I want to add one thing, um, Shani. Um, just so in being in Kamonga 15 years and in learning of so much of the history, and you know what, just to say this, when talking to some of the senior members and when we speak on, because this has comes up a lot about Ming being the first woman, all of the men have said Ming was one of the best that she could ball and she pushed them to be even better. So in the group, because she was great, not just because she was a woman, because she was great. And with that, and even right now, with some of the new women we have, Leila Amatua Paran, Adama Delphine Fawundu, Delphine Giallo, Lola Flash, I could not be more proud to have these women in the group and some of our other existing members. They are um, Salima Ali, June Truesdale, California. We are growing the voice of our women, their perspective, their experience, their, is, their vision is important. And as vice president of the group, I can't wait till when the numbers are really equal, but we are going forward and I'm happy and I'm damn proud of everything. I want to clarify something from before when I said uh, I didn't even know I was a woman. What I was trying to say was, well, things are like sexist, very sexist in the photography world. It's a very, but with Kamangi, I was never treated in that way. I wasn't, you know, like the three things, me too, and all those type of things. It was none of that. It was like, uh, it was ideal. It was, uh, uh, I was an individual and you know, the way they dealt with me, there was nothing at all that would make me feel self-conscious. You know, I was like, I was equally valid there. So that's what I wanted to clarify that. So my last question um, uh, is really just thinking about the gift that it is to be able to make a life in photography. Um, and I don't know, I think there's a little bit of, of magic to it you know, um, to be able to see this passing moment uh, and just kind of capture it in amber almost, right? To be able to offer a new perspective, to be able to offer the dignity um, that you mentioned, Russell. So I wonder if you all would just close by talking about what it means to you to have created this life for yourself. What does it mean to you to be a photographer? The world that I've created it's it's like a dream. It really is. Like everything is that has come, and it's just because I did it to to do it, and in the doing it was a great reward. And lately, I've been acknowledged. But I was in the Museum of Modern in in the collection in 1979. There was 30 years that there was nothing really. There was you know. Um, I was in a few of Deb Willis's books, but you know, this is all new. Um, boy, it means a lot. Um, to be a photographer is a responsibility, at least with the work that I do in mainly documentary photography, 
uh, some of the work that you've seen with some fashion work I did recently of Dapper Dan, but it is a responsibility to my community um, that until we are equal in this world, I have to create images that really show our greatness and not really for the world, you know what, for the world, but first really for us, is for us to see positive reflections, for us to see, you know what, goals, for us to see family, um, and then to educate, to inspire, to empower, to challenge, um, and looking at my career, I've been photographing 22 years, I gotta pinch myself sometimes. Here it is, a son of immigrant, didn't graduate from college, didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do when everyone was against me. Um, is it my self-confidence or my stubbornness that said to me, you know what, you're gonna do this photography thing? And then everything that I've had to per persevere, and I could only, you know, would say that I think a part of it is just maybe some of the ancestors. You know what, how I've been blessed, meeting Eli Reed, working at Magnum Photos, the Associated Press, Kamange, going, documenting out my community, showing, working China, Ethiopia, France, and teaching, and then stopping and being in the community and being able to speak to that aspiring photographer and just give them some wisdom and really just give back. So being a photographer, it's fun. I love working for myself. I love creating. I love the hustle. I love the fact that we could be in venues like this. I love how I can be authentic to who I am and really show other people who look like me, especially that you can do this and there's a place for us and your voice, your vision is important and that is for the people here in the Caribbean, you know what, in Latin America, in Africa, everywhere, that show the world where you come from. Show, educate, inform the world, especially at a time like now where we have social media and digital platforms to create access that was never ever um, available before. So as long as I have a camera and even with being in Kamange and to create work again that to come together with the great people in Kamange and outside that to show the power of unity and that the power of, of visuals and the image is important now and it's very important that we author our own stories. And that's a word to end on. Thank you, Russell. Thank you, Ming.
My thanks to each of you for coming. Again, this is a live taping of the New Lineage broadcast, which will be a podcast and also a portrait project. As a photographer, I'm going to be making portraits of each person that I interview. Um, so please go to at Lineage Podcast on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Uh, follow us, stay in the loop. There's going to be some exciting announcements coming up soon. Um, and I'd like to thank the Brooklyn Museum again for having us tonight. Thank you all so much. Thank you, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us on iTunes. It helps others discover this show. You can also follow us on the socials at Lineage Podcast and visit lineagepodcast.com for information about live events, to see portraits I've made of our guests, and to become a patron of this broadcast. For more from me, head on over to shawneejamila.com. The inaugural season of Lineage is brought to you by the generosity of our campaign supporters, with special thanks to our founder circle. Amiga Carter, Ayana Dixon, Vera Grant, Lawanda Hodges, Ayana Minor, Wendell and Helen O'Neill, Rimani Rogers, Jimmy and Lee Sutton, Chantal Vera, Stacey Burton-White, and our associate producers, the BK Fam. Graphic design by Tony Moore Images, original music composed by Cody Got Beats.